Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 21. No, this is episode 22 of season four. And I can't believe I'm just racking up all these episodes. We're going to go straight through the summer and then take a little break in the fall. I might have already mentioned that to you. But today I have an exciting episode for you. Now, first of all, of course, if you listen to this all the time, you know what I'm going to tell you, how you can help out historical fiction unpacked. So there are a few ways. The first one is to follow the show or subscribe to it on your favorite app for listening to podcasts. And while you're there subscribing, or if you're already subscribed, make sure you go and rate the podcast and leave a review. Now, it can be a long, beautiful review like this one from T. Duda. She said, this podcast is truly a delight. Allison has a soothing voice, thank you, that invites you into her storytelling world of books and tea. I love her Q&A style with her guests that expose us to new content. Historical Fiction Unpacked is a fun way to learn and relax. Thank you so much, T. Duda. Um, I appreciate all those uh, just verbose reviews where someone takes the time to really write what they think of the podcast. But then also, there are the quick ones, which I mentioned last week. One of them is from Will Cardone. He just said five stars, and that's um, that's how much he likes this podcast. So whatever, however long your review is, I would appreciate a review because that helps other lovers of historical fiction find the podcast. Okay, enough about that. The other quick ways that you can get involved with Historical Fiction Unpacked and help out the show. Um, You can join the podcast group on Facebook and you can follow us on Instagram at Historical Fiction Unpacked. And then of course, if you want to go above and beyond and support the show with your pocketbook, please go to patreon.com slash Allison Treat and check out all the benefits to supporting the show on Patreon. I'll tell you that there is a level, it's $25 a month, And you will get a free book every month, the book that we talk about on the podcast, of the book of your choice. So um, that is, you know, one of the pricier memberships, but it's well worth it because you get a bunch of other perks and then the added benefit of one free book every month. Now, you only have to join at the $5 level in order to get the monthly book review videos. And I I talk about the different um, books that I've read lately and give you the inside scoop on what I thought about each one. So speaking of that, that brings us to our conversation today, because I am speaking to Terry Roberts, and I'm talking to him about his book that came out last July. It's called My Mistress's Eyes Are Raven Black. And I did read this book. I really enjoyed it. But I'm going to give a little bit of a warning here because some I just know my listenership that some of you prefer clean books. Um, And this one is really not clean. Um, I thought it was very well written, very well done. But I just want to kind of give you that little bit of a caveat so that you are not surprised in case you pick it up. But that's the kind of thing that I go into more detail about in my book review videos. But that's enough about me. We're going to spend the rest of this episode talking about Terry Roberts, who is the author of four celebrated novels, and we'll be mostly speaking about his novel that came out last July, but he has a new one that's coming out next month. So stay tuned for that. He talks about it toward the end of the interview. Um, Without further ado, here's my conversation with Terry Roberts. Terry, thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, you're very welcome, Allison. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I admire your work greatly. I'm a fan of your podcast. And so this is a little bit of a, this is a treat for me. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Um, I just finished reading your latest novel, My Mistress's Eyes Are Raven Black. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's fascinating. Can you tell me about this book? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, this book actually had a long gestation period in the sense that for quite some time, um, I had been thinking, uh, about the question of why human beings seem so susceptible 
to the hatred of the other, why we're so suspicious and indeed mm -hmm. um, even violent towards those who aren't like us in some way. You know, they look differently. They're of a different tribe, a different background, a different, you know, physiological makeup. Um, right. and, it's, and it seems to be something almost universal. Uh, almost every, every race has a race toward which it vents its, its spleen, so to speak. And I had thought about this off and on um, for really a number of years and way back. And I always tell people this. I started this book, or at least I had the idea for this book and had done a lot of the research before 2016. And the mm -hmm. reason I say that is because in the presidential election of 2016, immigration suddenly became such a hot button issue. Uh, it, right. It, it got politicized fast and furiously. And I was already into this project at that point. Um, mm. and in some ways was a little bit dismayed, um, you know, for both because it, it opens up so much about us, not just us as a country, us as a culture, but just us as people, as human beings. And so, so to back up even a little bit more, when I first began to think about this, I asked myself, where do you set a novel that has to do with these things, with, with the human, the seeming human need um, to have an other, to, you know, someone to despise, someone to mistrust, someone to look down on, so to speak. And right. it occurred to me that Ellis Island might be such a place. Um, in part because it's a, it's a, even though thousands of people in the 1920s uh, and 30s came through Ellis Island, the actual uh, staff that stayed there was relatively small, and it was sort of a self-contained stage, if that makes sense, you know. So, as a, and and you know this as well as I, for a fiction writer, that that presents a kind of wonderful opportunity because it means you can set the the action of, of a novel in this case uh, right there in a place that you can describe in detail and then and then live there with your readers so to speak for a period of time so I'd never right. been to Ellis Island I'd mm. seen photographs I'd read accounts I'd you know read collections of letters and so forth and so on um, so I was basing all this on a on a leap of the imagination <laughs> if you will. And uh, turns out it was a, I think, I hope I landed safely on the other side of that leap. Mm -hmm. um, I began to, to take notes. I began to imagine uh, how this might play out. And at one point began to think of it as a murder mystery, um, that there might be uh, a faction of sort of mysterious um, probably staff on the island who, for whatever reasons of their own, um, were, were violently opposed to certain kinds of people immigrating into the United States. And, and again, at that point, it didn't seem heartbreakingly topical. It, you know, it, it seemed historical in the sense mm -hmm. that you and I would use the term, meaning it's a, it's a, deeply woven part of American history going, you know, back hundreds of years, but it, it didn't seem so quite so immediate. And I was glad of that. And so I began to think about these things. Um, the other sort of thing I'll say by way of shorthand is that I needed a detective if there was going to be a, you know, a series of, of killings and this was a murder mystery, then I needed a detective and I cast around and two things happened. One, the more I read about Ellis Island and the history of Ellis Island, it came to the surface that the 1920s, particularly the early 1920s, mm -hmm. uh, were a particularly troubled time in its history, right after World War One. Yes. And as it happened, um, the fictional hero of an, one of my earlier novels, A Short Time to Stay Here, was in New York. Um, 
I jokingly mm. say Stephen Robbins auditioned for this job. You know, he, <laughs> in my he said I can do that, and I think I probably initially said no, you can't. <laughs> You're not a detective. <laughs> And he said, ah, but, you know, and we sort of, we kind of went back and forth, so to speak, in my imagination. Yeah. And I decided, well, maybe he can do that. But, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe uh, um, maybe he is up to the task. And, and so those were the makings, I guess I would say, of this book. Oh, great. I love that. I love that uh, he got the role because mm-hmm. he played it well. So, <laughs> <laughs> um. So I believe your publisher originally told me that there were maybe some real life inspirations behind the story. There, there were, except that there was, to my knowledge, there were, there was never um, a cult of murderers, so to speak, on Ellis Island. That, that, that part, the serial killings, is entirely fictional. Um, Other things that happen, some of the characters in in the novel. Um, are based on historical counterparts. Um, I'm, I'm thumbing through the book as we speak. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. when he Stephen first goes to the island, he has an appointment with Augustus Frederick Sherman. Chapter four yes. begins with Augustus Frederick Sherman was fastidious, you know, and goes on to talk about <laughs> him and his monocle. Well, Sherman was a real character. He, he's a historical mm. character. He, he was a, photo- a photographer. You can, you can, in this great modern age we live in, go online and purchase a collection of his photographs. And you've probably actually seen some of them, you know, if you look up Ellis Island online. And right. he was, as in the novel, apparently, the historical Sherman was fascinated by what he called type. Um, you know, and if you sort of twisted that a little bit, it comes out race and in our terminology, although not so much what we tend to think of in American current American culture as race being black and white, but rather all shades of right color, shape, hair, eyes, eye color. Thus, my mistress eyes are raven black, you know, and so mm-hmm. and those photographs were not simply a matter of recording the kind of exotic human um, culture that came through Ellis Island. They were also a sort of, you know, I hesitate to say scientific, but almost almost a scientific study of type. Hmm. And so that that part of this book and the attitudes toward um, toward race and eugenics right. the 1920s was the high water mark uh, of eugenics in the united states also yeah um which is and it's a little terrifying the more you read about it the scarier it gets so right um yeah it is so so all those all those pieces and parts were were real were quite real um the layout of the island the isolation hospital on island 3 um, all of those things, right. the autoclave <laughs> was, mm-hmm. th- those are all real. And, and, and in fact, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. You know, people always say, how did you do that wonderful research? Well, in this case, stumblingly, <laughs> haltingly, right. you know, <laughs> um, my wife and I had a chance to go to Ellis Island when I was maybe mm-hmm. halfway through the the first draft. And, we took the hard hat tour, which I highly recommend to, oh. to you and your listeners, because they take you out to Island Three, um, yeah. which is haunting. It's a haunting place, and because uh, it wow. has not been rebuilt, re- redone. Um, and we were on the hard hat tour, and we came to the morgue, and we came to the laundry, and lo and behold, there was the autoclave. And they described mm. to us what it did that, you know, sanitized mattresses. And, and I looked at Lynn and I said, that's it. <sighs> and, she, and she said, that's what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, and I said, that's how they do it right there. You know? Um, yeah. 
And so far, nobody's called me on it. You know, nobody at Ellis Island has called me up and said, you idiot, that <laughs> that could never have happened. So, um, so yeah, that that's one of those lucky providential almost um, happenings. That was a gift in terms of right. the story. Yeah, I love it when that happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I've... I'm sure you don't know this because it's not published yet, but I've also written a manuscript featuring Ellis Island, mm. um, though not so deeply as your mind, just the characters pass through Ellis Island mm-hmm. and they don't get detained. So we don't have nothing to do with Island Island three. So I was going to ask more about your research and that's um, I'm, I'm glad you got to visit. I did. I've visited as well, but did not take the hard hat tour. Um, but that sounds interesting. What other kind of, research did you do about the island or about the time period? Yeah, a lot about eugenics, for one thing, the attitudes mm-hmm. that fed uh, the, the faux science of eugenics, that there are some racial makeups of, of human beings that are genetically superior or inferior right. to others. And did a did a fair amount of reading. There there are between the sections of this novel, yes. you know, those short excerpts from several texts that, which were just stunningly horrific. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's amazing how people can think that way about other human beings. But it's it's horrifying. And in yeah. fact, there's one. I'm gonna. It's the last one, I think. And this particular author received a letter from a German man named Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. Mm. Um, and this, essentially, this letter said, and this is, an, you know, again, an American eugen- eugenist, I guess is how you would pronounce it. The letter uh, wanted this man to know that um, his, his book was Hitler's Bible. Oh my goodness! It was the thing he he lived by, so to speak. Wow! Um, and so all all of this was was not just sort of in the fringe in America in the twenties, but it was front and center. I mean, it it was it was right there. And so the whole immigration, all the immigration debates, was Lothrop Stoddard's "The Rising Tide of Color Against White mm. World Supremacy," nineteen twenty. So. Um, if I, if I haven't mistaken my, my sources, but, but all these, all the, I was very careful only to include things that, um, were already in print at the time of the story. Right. And so part of the attitude, which to us seems incredible, right? I mean, uh, you and I have both said it in the course of this interview, it's it's horrific and it's incredible. But those attitudes were fairly widespread. Uh, these were well-educated people making these arguments. One, and one in particular mm-hmm. was an attorney. One was a biologist. Um, and the code word, by the way, was Nordic. Um, oh. the, your goal and my goal and the goal of our society was to... Uh, to be Nordic and as purely Nordic as possible. Wow. And, and, and you can just imagine what that turned into in the thirties in Germany. Um, Right. So I did a lot of reading about that and, and sort of, I I don't want to say immersed myself in it. That's that I couldn't have stood it. I don't think, but that was certainly a piece of, of that. And then the other thing, I've just I found out about myself in writing historical fiction that I'm I respond to images really strongly and and so mm. Augustus Sherman's photographs other photographs um, taken on Ellis Island yeah you know those those became very I don't know almost like food for the imagination Mm-hmm. Um, in 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 making the novel, and then the other thing that that happened, um, and I write about this in the uh, 
I guess it's the acknowledgments in the back. My father was addicted to good old-fashioned hard-boiled detective fiction. You know, Dashiell oh. Hammett, Raymond Chandler, yeah, James N. Cain, Ross MacDonald. Uh, he he loved to read those things, and he had a couple of sisters who loved to read them as well, and they would pass them around. And so when I was a little tyke, <laughs> a little boy <laughs> growing up, he had these wonderful old mass market paperbacks, which had on the cover, covers typically, mm-hmm. something entirely politically incorrect there would be a smoking gun and a bottle of liquor turned over on its side and oftentimes a scantily clad person you know and and in fact at one point my mother wrote away in order to cover for, for that particular size of paperback I think she thought I was going to be corrupted somehow just from staring oh. at the covers of these books. <laughs> right. So, so she had she had this little kind of gold, almost plastic cover she put over the worst ones in her mind. Right, um, right. And and so protect your eyes. Exactly. And, yeah. and so so I wanted when I realized this could be a murder mystery, I wanted to write a book that my dad would like. He died in 1982. So, you know, Mm. this was an exercise in fond imagination. Right. And um, so I began to, I went back and sort of in a haphazard systematic sort of way, began to read, you know, that, that classic fiction and it's, it's powerful, powerful, stuff and um mm-hmm. you know starting with Dashiell Hammett and there's a tone and a mood and a and even a diction that comes with with books written primarily in the 30s and 40s and 50s um yeah that I tried to bring into this I tried to introduce in, into the manuscript you know you don't make a drink you build a drink and you take right. a hard bite out of it that, you know, st- simple little things almost like that. But but to try to capture and again, you know, our topic being historical fiction to try to capture the language and the feel of that place and time. Um, right. So that. Yeah, that's great. That was a kind of informal research. I, I guess yeah. Say. And that kind of research is can can be really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clothes yeah. and hats and shoes. Right. And yeah, I did love that. I mean, even the terms you used for, um, I had to actually look it up because I thought that step-ins were shoes, but they're, I think they can be, but they're also, um, was ladies' underwear? Yeah. Undergarment? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. <laughs> it, it's strange, was, isn't it? The kind of thing you learn. Yes. In doing this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Your book, we talked about how how bleak a, a picture it portrays of Ellis Island, especially at that time. Um, so it was like they were filtering out those who were seen unfit. Even even the, um, you know, what was sanctioned by the authorities mm-hmm. was, you know, disturbing. Um, but what do you see as the best way now to decide about immigrations do you or do you feel that they should not be vetted well it's a it's such a complex topic (laughs) not to get political or anything no i know no no i i don't i don't even mind i don't mind that it's just so complicated i wrote a book the novel prior to this one called the holy ghost speakeasy and revival which is about a traveling troop of um tent revivalists and bootleggers in the 1920s and the, oh they traveled together well they were one and the and, same they were the, oh wow they, they sold bibles <laughs> that's and hooch. that's interesting yeah and um <laughs> so and and invariably at you know at the end of a, a a reading or a program or something somebody would say well what do you personally believe about christianity you know mm, <laughs> now yeah. that you've spent four years thinking about it or however long it was. 
which is right. always kind of a tricky question, you know, because you, you, you get caught in a, um, you don't want to say read the book and you'll find, and you'll know. Um, <laughs> right. But on the other hand, it's hard to boil down into, into a sentence or two. But, but in this case, I suppose what I would say about immigration is I think it's the thing that we don't understand necessarily is that many, many immigrants across the world, this isn't a, a, a uh, uniquely American problem. And in fact, countries in Europe have a much more, are faced right now in 2022 with a much more um, urgent crisis, immigration crisis than we are. You know, we, we get mm-hmm. pet up about the southern border. But, you know, Europe is a small um, geographically a small place. And so when populations are displaced uh, in the Middle East and, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, it's, it can be horrific for they have no place yeah. to go, literally. Right. You know? And if you stop them at the border, as is perhaps your legal right, if you're France, let's say, for example, or Spain, um, mm-hmm. you're creating a humanitarian crisis. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose a couple of things I would say. One is this is about this is a human problem. It's not an American problem. Mm. Um, and it is a uh, certainly a moral and ethical problem, not just a political or economic problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so often what happens is that immigration um, the arguments made around it become economic really quickly. We don't want those other people to come take our jobs. You know? Right. Uh, or we don't want those other people. And, and on a deeper level, you know, the, which really is explored in the book, this notion that there will somehow be miscegenation, race mixing, you know, whether the color of the skin is an issue or not, that, that's very real. I mean, it's mm-hmm. visceral for many people. Um, and so I guess my thought is that we, we need, I think, to step back and try to take a much larger historical, moral, ethical view of immigration and, and make some decisions about, um, the purpose of, of ourselves as human beings, not just as, um, um, capitalists or Americans or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're not good at that, right? <laughs> I mean, we really aren't. And, and, and this book, in a way, in a kind of oblique way, not bleak, but oblique, <laughs> oblique way, right, right. asks that we do that, you know. Um, yeah. Can we... Um, can we, in the 21st century, afford beliefs that we held in some cases quite strongly a hundred years ago, 200 mm-hmm. years ago, 300 years ago. Um, I don't know that we can, you know, I think yeah. the planet has shrunk. The world population has grown. The uh, technology has speeded everything up. So I'm not sure we have the luxury of, of hating the other. Anymore. No. So shifting gears now, can you tell me a little bit about your writing career and how you got to this place of, you know, your fourth book? And now soon, soon after this podcast releases, your fifth book will be coming out. Um, yeah, just tell me about that path. From- <laughs> it's a weird story. It's a, it's a little bit like the little engine that could, you know, um, in yeah. that like many of us, meaning you, me, and perhaps the listeners, I don't know if this is true of you, but I was, you know, one of those bookaholics as a child. I love to be read to. Mm-hmm. I love to yeah. read. Um, I became an English major almost by default. And <laughs> I could do math, but I didn't love math. You know, I loved reading. Right. And so, and eventually uh, finished a PhD in American literature in my 30s. Um, and wanted in my 20s, like, again, so many of us, to write the great 
American novel or the great novel mm-hmm. of any kind, <laughs> the, great, <Right. laughs> the great Western North Carolina novel or something, and yeah. um, tried, and it was dreadful. I mean, it, those mm-hmm. things don't exist, thank goodness. This was before, you know. <laughs> hard drives and the cloud and that sort of thing. And, um, and did, and so then didn't write fiction for a long time. Let's say from Mm. time I was in my mid twenties until, uh, probably early mid forties, so 20 years, give or take. Wow. And didn't think about it and didn't, um, fret about it didn't miss it. Did you write other things? Yeah, what were you I wrote doing a, during I'm, that time? I'm a career public educator. Um, okay. And so wrote a lot of nonfiction. I wrote nonfiction about um, writers, Thomas Wolfe, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Spencer, uh, John Ely, okay. for example, and then wrote a lot of nonfiction about education. And then somehow in my, I'm going to say mid, late 40s, I was living away from I was living in Chapel Hill, a university town, but it was, you know, mm. four hours away from the mountains where I grew up and sort almost as a mm-hmm. sort of reimagining, retelling, revisiting, you know, the mountains, which felt to me like a, a home. As Stephen Robbins' home. You know, he dreams about the mountains in yes. this book and he's on the way back there at the end. Yeah. Um Began to write a story, the story that eventually became a short time to stay here. And in the beginning, didn't think it was for publication. I thought it was for, you know, one or two friends to read, maybe my children eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't. I'd never taken a creative writing course. Um, I've sort of taught one a long time ago, but very badly. I have a feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, um, so I I wasn't of that ilk. I, you know, and I I hadn't been trained as a fiction writer. I hadn't tried Mm -hmm. to train others. I hadn't studied the craft, so to speak, except that I spent a lot of years reading good writers. And so that's the best training. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. (laughs) Here's, here's to that form of training. Um, (laughs) So I started writing the story, and and eventually I thought to myself, you know, when there was maybe 200 or 300 manuscript pages, I thought, you know, this really isn't that bad. Um, Maybe, Mm. just maybe, it's a book. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't quite let myself believe it, you know. And so, again, I finished it, uh, finished a version of it, and um, actually was fortunate in the sense that it, because I'd had some literary connections, it found an agent in New York fairly quickly, which is, you know, wow. for most writers, it's just, you know, it's like <laughs> having all your teeth pulled or something. Yes. And, um, <laughs> but she couldn't sell it. Um, um, and, and she loved it or claimed she did. And I, I believe she actually did. And she, you know, so I had the, at that point began to have the typical first book experience. You know, she said, just try to find mm-hmm. any local regional publisher who will do it. Terry, I just can't publish. Can't find a publisher. Can't sell. Them. So I finally mm-hmm. found a very tiny regional press named Ingalls Publishing, which has since gone out of business. And they printed it. And it uh, it won an award. It won the Willie Morris Prize for Southern Fiction. So. Which oh, great. and when I first found out about that, I didn't realize what it meant. I, you know, I thought you were going to get an eight <laughs> by t- eight and a half by eleven suitable for framing. You know, right? Something to stick on the wall. Turned out to be a big deal. Um, mm. And so, with that, I you know, and it, it it was originally published, I believe, in twenty thirteen. I can't get up because I'm. But early, you know, just about 10 years ago, maybe 2012. And and so with the contacts I made through that experience, got somebody to look at a second novel, which became That Bright Land. (laughs) And then Speakeasy, I mentioned earlier, was the third. And, And so, yeah, in a weird kind of way. 
and I, I really can't explain it. I've talked about this with people before, but I don't know that I can offer a, a, a valid psychological explanation. I, I went long for a long time, maybe two plus decades, not writing fiction, not thinking about writing fiction, not, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then one day it sort of, it happened. It took off. Um, it was time. It was time. And, and in part for me, I think it was a matter of having lived long enough and experienced mm-hmm. enough and read enough and felt enough and thought enough. Yeah. Um, that there was something to write about. Um, so right. yeah, it's, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a, it's been a fun ride, so to speak. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, I love to hear all the different stories of just how people finally got off the ground. Mm-hmm. So that's neat. So what are you working on now? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, I said earlier that my mistress eyes sort of drew, grew out of that question of why do human beings hate? Mm-hmm. And why do we seem to even the, in even the nicest, <laughs> kindest people will surprise you on occasion by yeah. despising some group? I don't know. Um, so this this book that's coming out this year, this summer, b- began with a different sort of question. It began with the the question of our relationship to money. Um, why we seem to love it <laughs> so <laughs> so furiously you know so yeah uh, passionately and uh, there was an event it happened on um, November the 20th 1930 to the day that day dark of the moon in Asheville North Carolina more or less my hometown the the Great Depression came to Asheville in a sense. Of course, the stock market crash had happened in October of 29. So the, the Great Depression was grinding mm-hmm. away in America. But on that day, November the 20th, a year later, eight banks in North Carolina, in Asheville, in, in Western North Carolina, but particularly in Asheville, failed mm-hmm. to open. They did not open their doors. Wow. And so if you or I had been alive then and had our money, however much money we might have had, our savings, our life savings in the bank, it disappeared overnight. Oh, my goodness. Um, and so I, I got, I always thought, you know, kind of like Ellis Island as a setting for writing about immigration, it seemed to me that this event was was a godsend in a way because it was a way to write about um, our needs, our desires, our fascination with money, with wealth. One of the mm-hmm. you know, and and so I wanted to write a a book about that, a novel, and I thought it should be told from the inside by someone who worked at the bank and who saw this, perhaps saw it coming, but felt the crash when it crashed because i think historically that's something we've lost we've lost the sense despite the recession of 2008 and despite you know mm-hmm. various experiences in our lifetime we've lost the sense of what it felt like for a con- well in fact it was again not an american problem the world was suffering the, the great depression yeah. but for the world to go broke and for right. that to mean that i went broke and that you mm-hmm. went bro- broke, meaning I got 57 cents you know, to my name. Wow. Um, so the best thing that happened to me in this case is that I thought it should be somebody on the inside. That I thought perhaps it could be someone who was a math savant, somebody who thought and felt in number, not words so much. And almost as a... I don't know, as a um, a sudden revelation thought, well, typically you think of math, you think of men. Why not make this a woman? Hmm. And so the, the title of the book is The Sky Club, and I wrote it 
entirely in first person from the point of view of a woman named Josephine Salter, Joe Salter, mm-hmm. who comes to town when her mother dies. Uh, her mother tells her, <laughs> quote unquote, to get the hell out of here and don't live the life I lived. Make a life mm. I can't even imagine is what her mother tells her to do. So Wow. So she leaves a very isolated part of Western North Carolina where actually where my dad and his brothers and sisters grew up and comes to town and goes to work at the bank uh, in the lowliest possible position. And her her genius with number comes to the forefront and she, she rises through the ranks probably as far as she could have as a woman. And then, and then witnesses all of this up from the inside out and is a part of it. And um, it was very dramatic events. The, the, the mayor of Asheville uh, killed himself not long after this crash. Mm-hmm. Vice president of Central Bank and Trust, where Joe works, killed himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it has all the classic tragic ingredients of the crash. In fact, the working yeah. title of the thing for, the, I don't know, two years or so I worked on it, the COVID years, was the crash. Um mm. Uh, she goes on. She she survives, so to speak, not just physically, but <laughs> psychologically. And she meets and falls in love with a man who, again, is he runs the Sky Club, which is a, a historical place in Asheville. It wasn't a boot. It wasn't a speakeasy and a nightclub until the until the 1930s. So when the book takes place, which is, again, right, 1929, 1930. I had to move the Sky Club up in time, and right, and she, and so she becomes involved with um, a man who, like her, is sort of a creature both of the country and the city. They've come to town and they've made their way, but their roots are country roots. Mm. You know, they and they. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of business in the book about. You know, which are we? And she decides in the end that she and Levi Arrowwood, the man she falls in love with, that we're both. In fact, when they get, mm. I, I don't want to say, I don't want to give away the end of the novel, but right, no. but um, it really is a story about, it started out to be a story about money and, and what happens when we, when we all lose all of it. And, but it became yeah. a story, I think, beyond that about survival and, um, the quest to know, not to know who you are, but then also the quest to create who you are, to imagine your life and then create it. In fact, you know, again, a lot of, yeah, almost each section begins with something like a, um, what does it mean? What are the, what is the recipe for making a life? Mm-hmm. And then later on, what is the recipe for making um, a partnership uh, uh, from for turning two pe- two individuals into a couple, um, right? And but in the thrust is that she was not a victim. She 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 made up her life and then created it. Mm. Sounds fascinating. So if you've listened to my podcast before you know there's a question i ask mm-hmm. all of my guests um how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present you know i know you've thought about this <laughs> for years right and as right. have i only probably not with the same intensity and consistency you have i think one of the things about the present is it's it's extraordinarily hectic. It's, it's, gosh, I don't know. It happens at the, at the pace of, of cable news and social media and, um, what is it? The 24 hour news cycle. Uh, mm. The 15 minutes of fame is 15 seconds of fame. Everything is, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's taking place at, at a pace we can't imagine. So I think mm-hmm. most of us live lives that are, at the very least, distracted. Um, mm-hmm. They're not meditative. They're not thoughtful. They're not reflective. 
um, yeah. in the way that I think people's lives in the past, I like to think people's lives in the past could have been, might have been, yeah. were from time to time. And so for me, writing in the past and, and telling stories in the past and reading stories set in the past is a way, I think, of slowing down the experience and making it more, in some cases, more sensual, in some cases, more reflective, in some cases, more um, self-aware. Mm -hmm. um, my mistress eyes, because it's a hard-boiled detective thriller, moves at a, I think, a very fast pace. It's short chapters, and you know, one event mm -hmm. feeds directly into another. But despite that, what I hope is that it asks these big questions in a way that causes us to reflect about the present. Um, what do we believe about race? What do we believe about? Um, great movements of people across the face of the earth. What do we believe about mm -hmm. immigration? What do we believe about nationalism? All those questions. And yeah. so for me, writing in the past is an invitation to the reader to slow down, you know, in, mm -hmm. in a way that I think is important. Not only is those of us who haven't studied the past are doomed to repeat it. That that old Saul. I mean, certainly that's the, <laughs> that's the case. But I also think it's an invitation to move more slowly, um, to hmm. move more through, you know, move across the landscape more thoughtfully. Um, my grandmother, um, my father's mother, Belva Roberts never owned a car, never had a driver's license, um, walked everywhere she went for most of her life, mm -hmm. you know, which in some cases was a pretty extraordinary distance, you know, for yeah. us, <laughs> the spoiled ones. <laughs> right. And um, so when I think about that, I, it seems to me that gives us some space, almost breathing mm -hmm. space. And and so yeah. I've tried, I've thought, you know, on occasion when people say, well, why don't you just write a book set in 2020? You know, and I said, and I've in the you know, dark of the night, I've thought, well, OK, what would it be about? <laughs> could I do it? You know, could I? And I'm not sure I could, you know, for the simple right. reason that it seems like such an incredibly cluttered landscape about which we know so little. <laughs> <laughs> and so. um the past, I think, helps us helps us as writers and readers in that way. It gives us both space and it gives us time. Yeah. To think. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And that's different. I don't think anyone else has mentioned that, but it's true. Because um, when I think about why I write about history, it's partly because I think history is so important and we can learn so much from it. But also, I mean, I just love to become part of that time for oh yeah um my writing time i mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> i'd i like to go back and and slow down and absolutely yeah absolutely john ely you know, a dear friend of mine for years and a great historical novelist in his own right mm. um tells a great story he you know he talks about living with a set of characters for four years, let's say three, three, four years, however long it might take to work on a book. Yeah. And John wrote in the era where you, you printed a final copy and you boxed it up and you tied string around it and you mm -hmm. addressed it to your editor in New York city or wherever. And, and you mailed it off. And, and he said, it's like, it's terrible experience because it's like putting these dear friends in a box, meaning a coffin, mm -hmm. and you have to say goodbye to them and they go away and they leave you. And, and he said, it's a, it's a mournful, I remember he used the word experience. And, and I thought about that. It's true. I mean, it, you, as you say, you get to spend your writing time with this 
with these people, but also in this place and time. Right. Um, that moves at its own pace. It moves at the pace which at which you can imagine it and, mm-hmm. and feel it and think it. And that, to me, feels like a much more humane way to live <laughs> than, <laughs> you know, than having the TV on in the living room and the, the radio on in the kitchen and the, you know. Your computer on one hand and, and your phone in the other. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Terry, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? They can follow me at on my website, uh, www.terryrobertsauthor.com. Mm-hmm. Um, they can also uh, join me on Facebook. It's... Um, the author page, we lovingly call it Terry Roberts author on Facebook mm-hmm. where we, you know, and, it, and it, it is very much about writers and writing and about what, what I'm doing in that vein, not, you know, what kind of sandwich did I have for lunch or anything about that? You know, <laughs> it's about, it's about this and it's upcoming things, yeah. and connections to things. That's probably the best way. Um, Great. And yeah, it's, I, my author email address is on the website and it's, you can get to me via the Facebook page and I'd love to hear from people and hear what they think about these, these people like my dear friend, John, I, I, I miss them when I've been away from them, Stephen right. and Lucy and my mistress eyes. And so I like to, I like to go back and visit with them and talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's neat. Great. Well, Terry, I have so enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for being with us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Let's do it again. (laughs) Yeah, sounds good. All right. Thanks so much. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Terry Roberts. I know it was a little longer, but I couldn't bring myself to cut out very much of what he said at all because I just thought it was so interesting. Um, Remember to go to the show notes, either in your podcatcher app or online at alisontreat.com slash blog. That is where all the show notes from all the episodes live. And from there, you can get to Terry's books and his website and social media and connect with him. So I was thinking about the slower pace of life that Terry talked about that his grandmother enjoyed and that I enjoy when I'm writing about history and we enjoy when we're reading about history. Um, And I found this quote that I just loved by Fennel Hudson from A Writer's Year. He says, mine is a so-called vintage existence, anachronistic living made all the more rewarding by keeping a raised eyebrow on the absurdities of modern life. So my friends, keep reading historical fiction and keep that eyebrow raised as you look at the absurdities of modern life. And I will talk to you again next week.